another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spearfield, another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough. Even if they don't dictate it way differently this time as I'm broadcasting from the bug out location up in Arkansas because we ended up stranded here for a couple extra days. Now, there was no show yesterday, Tuesday, but the show's actually being recorded Tuesday evening. We'll be published sometime on Wednesday on our way out of here, on our way back home with a drop off by our local Starbucks. So, one of the things I'm going to tell you about today is how we got stuck here a little bit too long. I'll tell you about a video we shot of it if you haven't seen it yet. And uh, let you know why, you know, people sometimes think if you're a mechanic, if you have tools, you can fix anything that goes wrong with a vehicle. Not always the case, and sometimes something as simple as a AAA card may be one of the best preps that you can carry. Before that, though, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, let's uh, let's talk about our advertisers for a second. You know, I haven't done a show for a week, so I want to make sure I remind you that the guys that are on our website as advertisers don't get there just by spending some money with us and saying, hey, put my, my banner ad on your site. First, I have to be willing to personally vouch for them. Then they go in front of the moderators on the forum, and there's about 30 mods, and if two moderators or more say, I, I just don't like this guy, I get a bad vibe, there's a problem, there's an issue, we don't want them, they don't get on the site. So they have to go through the ad council as well. So these are personal recommendations, and they are backed up from that recommendation with kind of a third party that doesn't really care one way or another uh, financially whether they end up on the site or not. That was a commitment I made to my audience from the very beginning. Today's advertiser of the day is ready-made resources. They have some really cool stuff, especially on the solar and kind of the wilderness stuff. Check them out. Uh, they are in the right-hand margin of the website. Uh, next, if you think you get more than 25 cents in value out of the Survival Podcast, consider joining the Member Support Brigade, and you'll get some exclusive content available only to members. Um, if you haven't joined our forum yet, think about joining our forum. It is a great place to meet people, to connect, and to get a wealth of information. I'll warn you in advance, we do have rules. You can't say anything you want in our forum. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater on our forum. It's not acceptable. We have community rules, so I'll just let you know that in advance. But we think that makes the forum actually run a lot better. Uh, Shannon Appleby's putting a get-together up in Region 6. Uh, contact him. I'll put a link to the uh, forum in today's show notes. And um, last uh, but not least, uh, I think actually that wraps it up. Let's go ahead and uh, get on with the show, and let's talk about, you know, what actually happened, what caused our delay. Well, there's a cool little YouTube video. I'll put a link to it. I uploaded it uh, last night with another stop by Starbucks, and um, it, it really is pretty cool, I guess, because it kept me from blowing my top and being angry about the situation. And it, it's very real. I mean, it's right then, right when it happened, right after we called for a tow truck. And while we're just sitting there in the blazing 100-degree 4th of July heat, waiting for, I guess you'd call it rescue to come. Now, here's what happened. is, is we, were, we were coming down our hill uh, about two, three miles away from actually the bug-out location and getting ready to ascend another hill. The transmission just went wacky is all I can describe. It would lurch. It wouldn't go forward without, like, pausing and hesitating. And it was basically shifting in between gears while the truck wasn't moving is the best way I can describe it. Or As you started to move it, it didn't know if it was supposed to be in, you know, fourth gear or first gear or third gear or second gear. It just was all over the place. And because of that, it, you couldn't move it. 
Moving it would have definitely damaged it a lot more. So I got about halfway up the hill before that happened. So I put the vehicle in neutral and drifted it basically down to the bottom of the hill where I had good visibility in case anybody came from either direction so we wouldn't get hit. Picked up the phone and called AAA. AAA took um, no time at all to notify a wrecker, but we sat there for almost two hours uh, before the wrecker got there because they actually got lost looking for our bug out location, at least even the road that led to it. And, and these are people that live in the area, so I guess we do have a good kind of secluded area. The thing I want to put a, a pitch in for AAA here, though, guys, and if they would be a sponsor, I'd take them immediately because I think they are one of the things that gets overlooked by preppers because we're always worried about you know the end of the world instead of what's going to probably happen in the next year to us sooner or later being stuck somewhere. They called back about five times, checking to see, is your wrecker there yet? Is your And every time we told them no, they got back on the phone with the wrecker people, and actually the guy had given up and gone home, and they sent him back and said, go get these people. And uh, they sent him out to us, and the guy got there. When he got there, he was a nice guy, but, I mean, basically he gave up looking and didn't tell him. And if it wasn't for AAA kind of really riding shotgun, you know, we would have said, I, I would have called them back, I'm sure, eventually, but it wouldn't have been as, as well done as it was. So the wrecker gets there. And tows the truck away. He wants to know if we want to ride. Well, where are we going to ride to? We're going to ride to the dealership on the 4th of July on a Saturday. Well, everything's closed. So that will be, you know, 20 miles away from the bug out location with no vehicle. So we said, you know, just take it and we'll hike back up to our place. He's like, are you sure? We're like, yeah, it's not that far. Uh, we did have our little mini bug out bags with us, kind of the, the short versions of them. We were actually heading out to go on a hike, so we figured what the hell, we'll hike up uh, to the bug out location. Now, the difference is we were hiking on this big wide road, baking in the sun rather than in a wilderness trail on West Mountain, which is where we were headed. Fortunately, though, while we were sitting there, one of our neighbors, we only have four neighbors, so, you know, what are the odds? One of our neighbors happened by, we told him what was going on, he gave us a cell phone number, and uh, we just started hiking after the tow truck driver got. We called him up. We only went about a half mile, and uh, he showed up and gave us a ride back to our place. So then we were stuck there for a couple of days. We actually borrowed the niece's car for about a day and a half after that. Uh, but So we were two days stuck at the bug-out location, well-stocked, well-prepared, did a lot of hiking around the place, hung out, watched our four channels that come in off air, uh, read magazines, read books. I worked on my book that I'm working on a little bit. It ended up being a really great trip. But it ended up being a great trip because I didn't have to sit for two days worried about my truck on the side of the road until any place opened because I had something as simple as a AAA card. I think we pay 75 bucks a year for the family for this thing. So, folks, if you do not have a AAA card, get one. Now, a lot of people have, I've seen on the forum where I posted about this happening, uh, asked what was wrong with the truck. There's a sensor on the transmission. And that sensor determines your speed and your RPMs. And using those two numbers combined tells the transmission when to shift. So, I'm a mechanic, yes, I can fix vehicles. I have tools in the vehicle, yes. The vehicle is well prepared and well stocked, yes. However, there's no way for me to fix that. It's absolutely because of the way modern vehicles work with computers. The only way I could fix that would be actually to have the sensor that was necessary to tell the transmission what to do with itself. That part wasn't in stock, so at the latest, an extra day. Nobody even looked at it till Monday. All right, so it wasn't a big deal, but I do want to drive home the importance of doing things like always carrying your cell phone with you when you leave the house, even if you don't think you're going to need it. Um, always having a plan for what you'll do if your vehicle breaks down. And then the big thing for AAA, if I broke down at Arlington, 
I could call any random tow truck driver just by dialing 411, getting some information, and say, hey, tow my vehicle over there, and I could get a rental car anywhere, because there's 6 million people in this town. There's always a rental car place open. There's always a possibility that I have family here. We break down out of town. It's a totally different situation. We're lucky we have a niece, and I guess you'd call him a nephew-in-law, uh, that live up there. They're able to loan, a, loan us a car for like a day after it got a little bit monotonous, not being able to leave. Even without that, we would have been okay. We would have had to get one of the neighbors to give us a ride down to pick our truck up once it was fixed, and that wouldn't have been that big of a deal. So there's another thing there. Think about with your bug out location. Do you really want to be out in the middle of nowhere with no people around you? That's pretty much not what I wanted. I wanted a place where there were some people around, good quality people that I could count on in a crisis, that could count on me in a crisis. And that's what we have out there. We have about five people on our road before we get to our gate, and about four more families plus us for another five after the gate. And uh, because of that, if someone gets sick in the middle of the night, if there's an accident, if there's a problem, there's people there that render aid. Uh, but yet we have the kind of people there that we don't have to worry about storming our house if the shit ever really hits the fan. So enough on that. I just thought you guys would like to hear about uh, what went on there. So um, let's go on to some questions. Now, when I got a chance to uh, go ahead and download my email finally, I found a bunch of questions came in while I was gone. And I thought since I didn't have any time to do any kind of research, this would be a good uh a good show today to do, and uh, maybe get me back into the swing of things. So I don't know if you can tell, but uh, I'm a little my timing's a little bit off. I think maybe it's from sitting still. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's not from not having computer with internet access in front of me while I'm sitting still. So I have to do one thing, and that is just talk to you. I'm a multitasker, and I think it can uh, it can uh, actually slow me down if I only have to do one thing. So let's roll on with it. First question that came in is a guy emailed me. And he said, hey, I want to know what your thoughts are on beekeeping and uh, honey. And he said he has allergies, and he's been using local honey. I think he said it was, I, I don't have the email in front of me, but it was his dad or his brother or somebody in a family started keeping bees, kind of just as a hobby. And all he does is keep the honey for himself and give it away as gifts. But this guy has been using the honey in his coffee in the morning, one teaspoon, and his tea in the evening, one teaspoon, and he says it's cleared up his allergies. Now, I have a little bit of skepticism every time I hear that, but I've heard it from enough people that I'm willing to say it's probably credible. Now, I do think there is some medicinal uses for honey, and I think that may be one of them. I know that whenever we had a sore throat, one of the things my grandmother would always concoct would be some hot tea, a little bit of whiskey, lemon, and honey, and tell us to drink that. Even when we were little kids, like a little, you know, one ounce of whiskey and something like that, and you're going to go to sleep because you're sick, ain't going to hurt you, drink it. And uh, to this day, when I get like a sore throat or something, I use the same thing, and I find it to be very effective. I've used it with my wife when she's had a sore throat and been sick. It's been very effective for her as well. So I think there's a good medicinal component to honey. Um, the, the whole thing with, um, I don't know, you guys might find this interesting, the whole thing with honey and being local honey and having it help with allergies is really based on a concept called homeopathy. And uh, original homeopathy, not the things that has been twisted and convoluted and made in today. Uh, homeopathy, back in the, in the days that it was originally created, was created by a guy named Samuel Hanneman. He was a doctor, and this is back in the days where they still like cut you open and bled you if you were sick because they thought that you had bad blood or they put leeches on you or something like that. And they used all these harsh chemicals to treat people like arsenic. But they never gave arsenic or any of these other chemicals to 
to healthy people to see, well, what the hell does this do to a healthy person? And no doctor ever tested it on themselves. Well, Hammond thought this was nuts. How can you put a chemical into somebody when you don't know what it does to a healthy person and then gauge a sick person to say it's creating an improvement? In other words, before there was a true scientific method, this guy was going, uh, we kind of need a control group here. So he started. He tested all these chemicals, like 38 or some chemicals on himself. I don't remember the exact number. But then he made notes of, like, they caused welting, they caused fever, they caused chills. And then what he decided was whatever it caused, that's what he used to cure, like curing like. But what he did, which is very, very controversial, and I have some skepticism myself on this, is he would take arsenic and put it in a little, a little drop of arsenic in a tube, and he pounded on a leather pad like 20 times or 100 times. I think it was 100 times, actually. And then he would take the, the, the stuff that was in there and put one drop of it into another tube, put a cap on it, take that tube and pound it 100 times on the leather. All right? Then you take another drop. So you're diluting the dilution, 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 where you're getting to a point where at some point that tube has so little of the original substance in it that it almost is undetectable. Yet he said it still had an effect. Okay? And it was that the energy signature was left in there. So that's something that you know you have to have a little bit of mystical belief in you. I'm not writing it off. I'm just saying I have some just some basic scientific skepticism there. But the like occurring like is what the honey thing is based on as well, because the local bees are you know getting their pollens and and their nectar from all the things that are making you have allergies, converting it to a honey, and its energy signature is there. So maybe there's some validity behind this, and uh, it's worth checking out. Now, me for, for bees, it's a source of sugar and food. Honey doesn't spoil without refrigeration, so it's a great long-term storage energy source. And you can make mead out of it and various forms of honey beer, honey wines, pie mints, melamoles, etc. So I love honey. I plan on adding a couple hives. And then the bees obviously pollinate your garden, your orchard, etc., so I plan on adding a couple hives when we finally move to Arkansas. Uh, I think it's a great thing to keep bees. And I've even seen a thing with um, urban permaculture by Bill Mollison that if you want to keep bees like in a city or a town, you're worried about them interfering with people, keep them up on your roof, and that will keep, as they're entering and exiting their hive, they won't be bothering people. So I think you can pretty much keep bees anywhere uh, with, with the right equipment. Let's go ahead and uh, answer the next question. And that question is... Uh, the guy writes in, he says he stores about 12 gallons of water in BPA storage tanks um, in the back of his truck, but he lives out in the desert and it's hot. And he's worried about chemical leaching of the BPA plastic. Um, let me take this in two sides. The first side is, uh, I've done some research in the past, and even a little bit of time in Starbucks was able to find this article about BPA bottles and about the chemical leaching from them. Uh, and it's like biphenol or something like that. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what you call it, but the, what the B stands for, that is what leaches into the water. My understanding is that even those little water bottles that people carry around with them that are made out of this stuff, there's leaching even when it's short-term. So if it can be short-term leaching, sitting in the back of your truck baking in the Arizona sun... I think you have a real concern there. Now, no one drinks this stuff and falls over dead. This is like a long-term repetitive problem that builds this toxin up in the body. So if you're only carrying it for survival means and you're not relying on it often, you know, I'd rather have water with the BPA leaching in it than no water. One of the things you can do, since it's only 12 gallons, is if you're growing any kind of garden or anything, empty that sucker out once a week and then refill it uh, and use the water for irrigation. 
That would be one way to minimize it. My my better suggestion would be to find something like food grade plastic or what have you, the big blue cans that look almost like a gas can, but they're made for water, and use that instead. I think it just would make sense, considering especially you don't have that much invested in this. You're only carrying 12 gallons. Uh, you might be better served uh, carrying your 12 gallons in something that's a little bit better for long-term storage. Even with that, though, well, the 12 gallons is not a lot of water. It's really easy to use that up with irrigation. So I would look at continuously rotating that water, not because the water will go bad, but because if you store it in anything, um, there's a potential for whatever it's stored in to eventually leach into it. Um, going on to the next question, um, guy writes me an email and says, hey, what kind of productive plants can he grow indoors that won't bring bugs in with it? In other words, he's got all these house plants that don't produce anything. So he wants to replace some of his house plants with some things that are maybe edible. And, uh, and he's also worried that if you do that, you might bring bugs in the house. Okay, First of all, bugs only come in your house because they're allowed in the house through a window or a door. So yes, if you take a container-grown plant that's outside that has bugs in it and you bring it into your house, you can bring bugs in with it. But if you take a nice little plant, a little seedling or what have you, and you put a pot in a sunny window and then you transplant that new seedling in there, there's no bugs. I don't care what grows on that plant. It's not going to bring bugs in unless it was outside for an extended period of time first. If that's the case, if you're bringing an outside plant inside, uh, go out and get yourself some insecticidal soap. Usually it's made of a mixture of soap and uh, corn or canola oil. And uh, give your plant a misting with that. And uh, mist really good around the root system as well. Now, that stuff's non-toxic to humans. It's not going to hurt you. It's going to be okay to bring in your house, but that'll help quell that a little bit. Another thing that you might do is make up your own very mild soapy solution. About one drop of dish soap to about a half a gallon of water is all you need. Water the plant with that. If you have snails, slugs, and soil organisms living in the soil, it will either kill them or cause them to evacuate the AO. They don't like it at all. And uh, we used to treat plants we would bring in in the Florida winter that way, and usually what you'd have come out of it are various snails, um, the little tiny shelled snails, not slugs. So those are two ways to, to combat if you're bringing something inside-outside or outside-inside uh, that might already have bugs on it. Otherwise, you just don't have to worry about it. For what you can grow, pretty much the only your only limitation is will it grow in a container and can you get it enough sunlight. Some of the easy things to grow indoors are usually the greens, your, your, your lettuces, uh, your spinaches, your, your beets, more for greens than for the bulbs themselves, chards, all that stuff's really easy to grow. I've done a whole bunch of container gardening you can go look up from past shows. Anything from that show can be done inside. Again, the big thing is do you get enough exposure to sunlight? And if you get enough exposure to sunlight for the, the plant, and it will fit in a container you have space for, you can grow it. So you can grow whatever you like. Don't really worry about the bugs all that much. Some of the interesting things maybe to grow indoors would be um, maybe a citrus plant. And maybe growing uh, kumquats or loquats might be a good thing to grow inside. The other thing is, you, you know, growing your lettuces, a lot of times it gets too hot in the summertime for them. So you're better off actually growing your lettuces in a shaded greenhouse or inside your home than you are trying to grow them in the garden. And actually, if you start growing like mixtures of lettuces with reds and greens and romaines and butterheads, you kind of create little mixtures in different pots. It's actually very, very attractive. I've had people ask with a, a you know a pot full of different lettuce varieties. Oh, what is that? That's a lettuce. They think it's some kind of ornamental plant. So uh, I wouldn't worry too much about the bugs, but there's some ideas to. Uh, to get that stuff growing in the house. 
another guy sends me an email. Him and some friends are looking at putting together, kind of combining resources and getting a bug out location. And he has two questions. I'm going to go ahead and answer both of them. One is, they really want a piece of land with a cave on it. They want to use the cave and make the cave part of the structure uh, of the house they eventually build on there. And are there any issues with that? Um, good question. The answer is, yeah, there are. Problem with a cave is that they're generally very, very moist, very damp. Now, for storing things, um, that's often a benefit. They're cool, so the air from them is cool, and sometimes maybe try to use for cooling. But the bigger problem is that dampness is so much, and usually a cave is such a large uh, area, and even if it's only a relatively small area, let's say the size of an average room that is the cave itself that you can walk in, there's usually little pieces and you know maybe a little pinch hole that you could barely fit your hand in. You may not realize it, but behind there, there may be a structure as big as the one you're standing in. And it's that massive volume of moisture that if you build a house over a cave, a lot of times what will happen is you'll have real problems with the house being overly moist, growing mold, swelling the wood, etc. So what you're a lot better off doing is building your house next to the cave, maybe building kind of an interim room that leads to the cave that's walled off and sealed off from the cave itself. Um, there are people that have tried to use caves as a cooling method. I've talked about doing this by burying uh, some pipes, say, 10 feet underground and pumping air through them. And that's something the Arabs did. Now, the Arabs did it in a very dry area. I don't know what the effects will be in kind of a more humid environment, but I know that a pipe in the ground is way different than a cave. And I know that people that have done this with caves have had problems. So I would look at kind of creating a separation. Now, that said, I think this is an awesome idea if you create kind of this, this, this uh, delineation in your structure so that that moisture doesn't contaminate the main structure. Good sealed off weatherproof connection. Because one, you have one of the most amazing root cellars you could ever want. What a great place to store root vegetables and other things. Great place to store ammo, very safe, uh, and, and powder as well if you're a reloader. And then on top of it, if there's ever severe storms uh, producing tornadoes, you're about as safe as you can get in a cave. So I would say do it, but keep those things in mind. Uh, now this guy asked me another question, and basically I'm not going to give away his location and the forest that he mentioned, or the city, but let's just say there's a big city. And about less than a tank full of gas away from the city is a big forest. And what he's saying is they think their bug out location should be on the other side of this forest because that's where the influx of refugees would come from. And do I think that they would stop when they got to that national forest, or would they cross it and keep going? And you know, Does, that, does his logic make any sense? Yes and no. Here's the biggest reason. By being on the other side of that furthest forest, you're further away from the city. Further is better, in my opinion. Especially a city of the size that, that this individual mentioned. Let's just say it's a major metropolitan area, very, very large concentration of people. Um, now, this is the one that I just, I just wonder, are we really thinking when we say that all the refugees are going to go out to the national forests and to the, the woods and to the, the countryside? I don't think they're going there, folks. Think about every time there's been a disaster, where do people head? They go toward the cities, not out into the wilderness. And if they are out in the wilderness, they're going to a city and they're crossing it. The, 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 the nature of mankind, especially the unprepared, is to go where other people are not away from people. Now there's a semi-prepared survivalist that might head out that way, might actually be a bigger threat to you, because he knows what to look for, uh, but the, I think that the vast majority of the general population, 
they're going to head toward population centers. They're going to look for help from the government, at least at first. So I'm not so worried about them coming out into the country, at least in the initial stages of a breakdown. All right? But I think your plan's good because it puts this, this vast concentration of emptiness right between you and a vast population concentration. But I, I still think if you were sitting in the middle of that forest, you probably wouldn't see people, at least in the early stages of a breakdown, for a very long time because they don't know what to do when they get there. Their only recourse is to go beg the government and the townships and the charitable organizations for help, and they're not going to set up camp in the middle of a forest. So I think maybe we need to let go of that image a little bit. Uh, next question. Guy says, uh, how do I extend the storage life of diesel fuel? And uh, I think that's a great question, but let's talk a little bit about this guy's individual uh, requirement before we really talk about the overall uh, concept. Okay, what this individual said is he keeps about five gallons, and that's all he keeps. And he has a TDI like I do. So five gallons, folks, might not sound like a lot, but in a Jetta TDI, uh, five gallons will take you about 200 plus miles. So he's got a 200 mile additional range with that one five gallon can of fuel. But it isn't a lot in volume. So if I were you, I wouldn't even worry about additives and long term storage of diesel for five gallons. I would about once a month, when the car's low on fuel, take the can, dump it in the car, Put the can in the trunk, drive the car to wherever you get your fuel, fill the car the rest of the way up, fill the can back up, and the next time you go home, stick it back in the garage. I would even consider getting the proper can and proper tie-down and keeping uh, maybe another extra two gallons in the car with you at all times, just in case you ever end up looking for a diesel station where you can't find one. All right? So that's how I would handle your situation, because you're not storing 200 gallons of fuel, you're storing five just dump it in the vehicle and don't worry about it. If you do that every month, no problems. Storing diesel fuel, even this ultra-low sulfur crap for a month, not that big a deal, not that big of an issue. Now, if you want to store um, diesel fuel long-term, there's a product called AMS Oil or Amsoil um, that I think is pretty good for long-term diesel storage. And it's very good as an additive for your vehicle as well. And I'll put a link to their website and the product itself uh, in the show notes today. And that will extend your storage capacity for diesel fuel. There's a lot of other additives out there. What you really have to know to store diesel fuel long-term with additives is what are your biggest threats. If you're storing them in metal containers, um, there can be some metal reactions. So there's additives that, that... you know, address that. If you're storing them in plastic containers, which is better, your biggest problem is some fungal uh, issues, and there's additives that protect against fungus. So you may need to use a combination for a large volume of storage. But for five gallons, don't, you know, that's one of these things that we as survivalists sometimes, we sweat little things that just don't need to be sweat. Take the can, dump the can into your vehicle, burn the fuel and replace it. That's the easy thing to do. In fact, leave it in the can. Drive to the place you're going to get fuel. That way you have the reserve with you until you get there. right? Dump it in at the station and fill it up and fill the can up at the same time. No big deal, no hardship, no worries about the fuel breaking down. Um, next question. The guy says, let me see if I can remember his question a little bit better, because all I have is how do specialization and division of labor affect survivalists? And basically what he said is, I understand that for like our society to work economically, 
that we have to have people that specialize in things. We have to have accountants, we have to have programmers, we have to have manufacturing people, we have to have general labor, we have to have management, we have to have all these skill sets. And that's the only way we can keep production the way that we do in an assembly line format, even when it's not an assembly line physically that we generally think of as people. Really, the entire economy is like this assembly line. But as a survivalist, you can't just be specialized in no one thing. You've got to have this vast, broad knowledge, kind of being a jack of all trades and a master of none, as Benjamin Franklin says. So how does this affect the survivalist, and, and what is my take on it? Well, here's what I would say. You can be as specialized as you want in your day-to-day life and how you earn your living, but overall, you need to create as much skill for yourself as possible. And I'm talking about things that you can do with your hand and things that you can do with your mind. I don't care what you do to make these things happen. Some of the things like, you know, building things like raised beds and trellises and all these other things. I'm going to build a dog run uh, when we get home this this coming week uh, because the dog is senile now. And even though I have these huge shade trees in the bottom of the yard, he won't stay in the shade. And I come home and he's baking himself out in the sun. But all these things that we build, there's not just so much to build them to have them. Every time you build something, you learn something new. And that can be applied to building something else. Um, Take classes. Do whatever it takes to become more efficient at making sure that you can deal with whatever comes your way. Put yourself into situations where you have to challenge yourself. If you're not mechanically inclined, go to you know your local college and your community college or whatever. Take a CEU course on, on basic auto maintenance and mechanics. At least know how the damn thing works. Um, learn every system that's in your home as best as you can. Now, there's limitations there. For instance, I'm not good with electricity, right? I'm talking you know the stuff that can fry you and kill you. I don't really understand electrical systems that well. So if we have an electrical problem in the house, I'm not touching it. I'll call an electrician because if something can kill me and I'm not competent on it, I don't touch it. But on the other side of things, you know, if we have a plumbing issue, I'm not going to die because I'm trying to unstop a drain. So I'm going to work on that myself and see if I can fix it before I call a plumber. And at any time that I call a professional into my home, when he shows up, I don't just say, ah, it's over there, go fix it. I pay attention, even if it annoys him. I don't care. I don't want to judge his performance because I'm not qualified to judge his performance. That's why I called him. I want to see what he does. I want to understand what he does. I want to learn from watching what he does. Because sometimes it's a very simple little thing, and if I ever got into a position where I couldn't make that phone call, I want to have availed myself of the opportunity to learn. And I think that's what we need to be as survivalists, is insatiable for knowledge, like knowledge sponges, sucking up everything we can, understanding economics, politics, mechanics, um, construction, agriculture, permaculture, how people interact, how to negotiate. You need to learn as much as you can. Now, obviously, this is stuff you can't all do in a day, but you got a lifetime. you got a lifetime to learn. Even if the shit hits the fan, you continue to learn during the shit hit the fan period, and hopefully you have enough background knowledge to carry you through the situation. But So my thing on division of labor, that's fine for the economy. That's fine for towns and cities and everything else. But you need to expand your knowledge beyond what you do for a living. Far beyond it. I absolutely agree with what this guy's thoughts are on that. Um, next question. Guy actually mentioned um, a show I did earlier talking about small generators, you know, like 1,200 watts and down. And uh, how I said they wouldn't really run a refrigerator or a, a freezer. You do a little igloo cooler things or something like that. And he said, well, you know, one of the great things that you can do if you have a power outage 
uh, to, to extend the life of your refrigerator and freezer is put some dry ice in the bottom of the refrigerator and the top of the freezer. Uh, and those that will actually keep your food cold for days. I agree completely. It's a great plan. The question is, when the power goes out in your city and you carry your butt over to wherever you buy your dry ice from, will there be any when you get there? If that is your plan, then I suggest you make item one, when the power goes out, go buy dry ice. Immediately. Imme- instantaneously. My other thing is, when you get there to buy the dry ice, if the power's out at the store, will they be able to sell it to you? Will they have people there that are intelligent enough to take cash? Because their power's out too. They can't run your credit card. They can't run their cash register. Will you even be able to buy it? Why? Dry ice storage is finite. I remember, you know, it was right around Halloween. It was like a week before Halloween. And um, it wasn't even a full week. I had ordered mice, and I'm a guy that keeps snakes. And I ordered mice, and when they shipped the mice, they packed them with dry ice. And I got like two pounds of dry ice. And it was only a couple days to Halloween. I thought, you know what, it'll be cool. We'll get one of those bowls, and we'll put the dry ice in it, and it'll make smoke, and the kids will like it when they come get candy. So I took the dry ice, and I thought, well, where's the best place to keep the dry ice? Well, hell, the deep freezer. It's already cold in there. So I put this bag of dry ice down in the bottom of my deep freezer, and three days later, when I went to get it out, it was gone. It had vanished into carbon dioxide, which is what it actually is. Now, I don't know if I would have kept it in a box instead of in a freezer, if it would have lasted longer, but I do know it doesn't last forever, so it's not something that's easy to keep a lot of on hand for a long time. At least that's been my experience. Now, if you know another way to extend the life of dry eyes, please put it in the comments today and let me know, because I think it's a great idea. You know, Again, my concern is unless you're going out and buying some dry eyes all the time, which seems to get redundant and expensive, how long will it be there after you purchase it? So, yeah, maybe you can put it in your freezer, in your refrigerator, and that might take you three or four days. Great. That'll get you through most power outages that we, we, we have. Uh, at least, even if it's the big power out for a long time, it would give you enough time to, to preserve the food that's in there in some other way or means. So it's great. But, one, how are you going to get it? Two, if you do get it, how do you make it last longer? Those are questions I don't really have uh, the long-term answer to. I was actually thinking about this, and the last time we were at the supermarket, I looked at a little chart, and if I remember right, 20 pounds of dry ice will last you about 72 hours. Um, So that's three days with 20 pounds. So, again, I like the idea, I like the concept, but... In a practical application world, will you be able to get your hands on it? If you can, do it. Do it fast. Stick it in your freezer. Stick it in your refrigerator. Again, top of the freezer, bottom of the refrigerator, and it'll probably give you a good two to three days of extended life of the food that's in there. But if the power is out, you know, if it's just your neighborhood, great. Go do it. Otherwise, I don't think it's really going to be that much of an option. Um, unless you're really one of the first movers and first people to think about it. All right, enough on that. Let's go on to uh, our last question today. Guy says, what are the proper dimensions and methods for installing swales? And what he said is he watched all these permaculture videos that I had on this, and um, he thought they were cool. He wants to try this on his property, but getting the exact dimension, exact methodology from this information wasn't, wasn't really easy to do. Um, so what else can I tell you about this? Okay, well, 
one, uh, sitting at the Starbucks, I found a pretty good little blog post on this. It gives a lot of information, a lot of specifics, so I'll put a link to that in today's show notes. My understanding from watching uh, a video called Water Harvesting and another one on just uh, permaculture design, food forest design, uh, with, with Jeff Lawton, is that they would be about two meters wide by close to a meter deep. So you have two yards wide by about uh, a yard deep. And then on the downhill side of the swale, you want to pile up a pile of very absorbent earth uh, uh, close to a meter in height, so almost three-foot high bank, gently sloping down away from the top of the swale. And you actually want to dig out kind of like a trench down in the swale at the edge of the swale and fill that with your earth so it creates this leaching action that helps pull the water out into the surrounding landscape. And then you plant in that pile. All right. Now, my thought was always you can always try big things on a small scale first just to see in practicality how they work. But that is the basic dimensions that I've gleaned from Jeff Lawton and from Bill Molson from watching all these videos. Remember, I haven't actually done this yet. This is one of the things I'm a little leery about advising on because I like to advise on things I've actually done. Uh, but this seems like a, a pretty basic thing that people have been doing for centuries. The big thing with swales is to stay on contour. And to really do that right, you're going to need some surveying equipment, even if you have to rent it or lease it, because uh, it can be quite expensive. But you want to make sure that the swale follows exactly the elevation line. So if your swale is going to start, let's say, at 100 feet of elevation in any random place, and uh, you want it to end at 100 feet of elevation, and you want it to stay on 100 feet of elevation in between, that's almost never a straight line. There's always some curve and bending to that. And this article that I'm going to link to for you gives you a lot of information about just that, how to set up a swale system. My bigger concern is what happens at the end of the swale? How do you allow the water to flow out of the swale without creating an erosion problem when it completely fills? What they did in this, uh, this water harvesting video is they put a dam in it, but then they put two swales on both sides of the dam. And what they did is, t down toward the end of where the swales ended, they came exactly level. So if it was at 100 feet, they, they left the berm go, and they let the berm taper down, and then they were exactly level at 100 feet on both sides of the swale. And they did that for, it, it looked like they did that for at least, uh, I would say, a good 30 feet on both sides. And so instead of having this little pinch point where the water flows over with a high pressure, you had this 30 feet delineated, very soft, seeping over the edge of the swell if the swell completely filled, uh, and out the edges as well, so that there was no major runoff, and of course it would just like kind of permeate down into the land. So that's the best I can give you without uh, you know visual aids. Take a look at this article, and I think it'll help you get a better understanding of how to put swell systems in. I I haven't even read the entire thing myself. I just didn't have time uh, last night when I pulled it down and cop you know, copied the link so I could paste it today. Uh, but that's going to wrap it up. So uh, we need to hit the road and get ourselves back to our primary location uh, out of the Hot Springs area. I'm going to swing by the local Starbucks and upload this one. I hope I wasn't too distracted today. This is not my usual broadcasting environment and uh, not the usual way that I do things. I like to have uh, Internet accessible for more research uh, for a longer period of time uh, before doing shows. But I think this one is probably pretty good. And at least I didn't leave you hanging another day without a show. This has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, 
doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent 